Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right, so as they explained, Nations Night, uh, June 22nd at 6.30. Uh, This will also be in our weekly reminder email. If you are not receiving that email, please come see me. We'll make sure you get signed up for it. Okay, so hopefully you have gotten to Luke chapter 8, verse, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. If you haven't, um, that's okay. But uh, I want to start off this morning uh, with a question. Um, And and this question is going to uh, need interaction, right? So you're going to have to speak. I know sometimes that's very uh, scary, but don't worry. The question is not going to be a dangerous one. How many of you have experienced moments of glory? You want to, anyone? Brian, what do we got? All the time, all right. Yeah, yeah. Anyone, anyone else have a specific moment of glory in Ransford? Anyone else? Julia? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to encourage everyone to think on this because I, every one of us have moments of glory, whether we can remember them or not. Whether they are physical, like just shared, or whether they are spiritual. Maybe you remember when God revealed himself and and called you to his own. Maybe you lived a life that was carnal, and then you remember a time in which God saved you and changed your heart and regenerated your mind. That's a moment of glory. Or maybe you were able to be a part of a baptism of a family member or a friend or even a child. We have gotten to experience some of the Uh, beautiful realities of children coming to know the Lord with both Travis and and Greg baptizing their children. And I remember the the faces of these parents as they were able to baptize their kids. But I guarantee you, these fathers in here have a greater experience and a moment of glory that they remember that's far deeper than mine, something they will never forget. Maybe it's holding your niece or nephew or a, a child that has come into your family for the first time. I want you to see that we all have moments of glory that point us to the great glorious Father and His love and grace. But we should also recognize as believers, and Scripture shows us this, that these moments of glory are shadows. They are shadows of the great reality that is to come. Because we can recognize that these moments of glory are moments There are foretastes of what is to come, but they end here and now. But one day they will no longer have a time frame of ending. One day we will be in glory together, worshiping the Lord for eternity. But this morning, what I want us to see in this passage is that these disciples, Peter, James, and John, get to experience a glimpse of what glory will look like in heaven. An experience so powerful in their lives that they couldn't help but write about it as they wrote their gospel accounts or wrote their epistles. We see John opens up his gospel saying this in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. He was so impacted by this moment on this mountain that he couldn't help but start his gospel with this reality. And Peter, at the end of his life, writing to the church, is still talking about this moment on the mountain when he saw Jesus in all his glory. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by this majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. This is a moment of glory that the disciples were a part of 
but would never forget. And the transfiguration this morning serves as that foretaste of glory, not only for those disciples that day, but also for us. Because what I want us to think about here, and I believe how Jesus is connecting this transfiguration with what he said last week, is showing us that this is your reward for following Jesus faithfully. I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you a preview of what it is going to look like in eternity when you die to self, bear your own cross, follow me, and you're not ashamed of me in this world, and you give up your life for my sake. This is what you'll gain. Because it's not hard to believe that as Jesus was telling his disciples that the Messiah must die on a cross, suffer, be rejected, and then resurrect, that this would have been a hard saying. John 6 tells us this, that Jesus gives this saying, and the disciples are like, this is hard. How how are we to follow this? And so I believe as we walk through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give us this answer. It's not going to be easy, but this is your reward. Your reward is in heaven. It is an eternal reward, and I'm going to give you a preview of it here on this mountain. But what I want us to see this morning from this passage is that for believers, as we follow Jesus, this glory that we will receive, the glory that Jesus has ultimately received from the cross, only comes after death. It can only come from following the cross and following Jesus in his life and his death. And for disciples, that might mean that it is our earthly lives that we must give up. But for the majority of us, it is going to be death to self daily, as we saw last week. And so this is how we receive this reward of glory. Death, following Jesus to the cross. And I want to show two ways in which we receive this glory as believers. As we fix our eyes on the cross... And as we recognize that glory only comes after the cross, we do this by beholding Jesus in his glory, and we do this by obeying his commands. So I want us to see that from this passage this morning. We receive the prize of glory by beholding him and obeying his commands. So let's read what Luke has to say on the Mount of Transfiguration. Starting in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is God's word. Let us go to him in prayer and ask him to illuminate what we have seen this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it we see your character and your goodness and your mercy to your children. In it we can behold your glory. In it, we find ways in which we are called to live and obey your commands. And in it, we find that we, as your children, being faithful to you, will receive a reward. And that reward is glory. And this glory is only received because of the ultimate sacrifice through Jesus Christ. And so help us to see him more clearly this morning. Give us light, O Lord, and ears to hear what you have to say, that we may have certainty of the things that have been taught about Jesus, and that we may grow in maturity and love for you. As your servant this morning, speak through me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasable and acceptable in your sight. 
my rock and my redeemer. It is for your glory and our joy that we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who were with us last week or listened to the sermon, I left on a cliffhanger, right? In verse 27, we saw Jesus say this, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now the cliffhanger was, what is Jesus saying? Especially after these hard sayings of, follow me, deny yourself, bear your own cross. And he leaves this saying for us or for the disciples and for us. And most commentators, and most, uh, maybe not most, there are, there are some back and forth who believe that Jesus is ultimately talking about his death and resurrection, that the disciples will see the kingdom of God through Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension. Some believe that the kingdom of God is the Spirit coming down, Pentecost happening, and the church growing. And some even believe that it's the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., all of this culminating in the kingdom of God coming to earth. Now, some of this may be true, and maybe all of it together is true, but what I agree with in the commentator, commentators and most pastors, uh, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke in its literary context, so if we're just reading it like the narrative that it is, every single time Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, it is followed with this Mount of Transfiguration. It ends with this, some will, see the kingdom of, some will not taste death and see the kingdom of God, and it's followed by Jesus revealing more of his glory. And so I'm going to land with reading this narrative that I believe the disciples are given a preview, as I said earlier, of what will happen in glory when they are faithful to following Jesus. So beholding his glory is the first thing that we are called to do. We see this on the mountaintop as Jesus is taking his disciples to a retreat in prayer. Peter, James, and John, he brings, and it tells us eight days after these sayings of following the cross, Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Jesus to pray. Now, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you should be highlighting the fact that Jesus, again, is going to pray. And what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our readers or, or Theophilus as he's reading this for the first time? He's probably excited. Hopefully he's seeing and believing and knowing that something is about to happen. Because once again, we see Luke highlighting Jesus going alone to pray and then following it up with something magnificent and significant happening in his life. And we see as he's praying, the appearance of his face is altered and his clothing becomes dazzling white. What a very interesting story that Luke would be writing, right? What a magnificent, magnificent and supernatural moment for the disciples to be a part of. But if you're maybe a critic in here of the scriptures, wouldn't you think this would be a story you'd probably leave off, right? Because this would be super hard to actually grasp and understand and believe that Jesus as a man all of a sudden alters himself or is altered from within to look like he is no longer human, but bright and holy and clean. And we know this from Matthew because Matthew tells us in chapter 17 of this parallel story, Jesus' face shone like the sun. And Mark would even tell us his clothes became radiant, so intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And so what Luke, Matthew, and Mark are all trying to do is trying to get us to understand through our own language something that is truly indescribable. The, most theologians would call this an appropriation, right? We are, they are trying to use our language and appropriate what we can understand to describe something that is so indescribable that our minds could not truly fathom it and speak it. And the writers in Scripture do this a lot. We see in Psalm 92, David writes, God will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Now, we know that God isn't some ultimate giant bird, right? But what he is doing is he's trying to describe the characteristics of who God is and how he cares for his people. And so Luke is trying to do the same here. And the gospel writers of Matthew and Mark are also trying to do the same in describing something that is so indescribable, so supernatural in what is happening here on this mountain. But I want to ask this question before we move on to what is happening here. What is glory? 
Because I, I think that for us in the church, we can hear this word and we might not actually know how to answer it. Maybe it's something that we've heard for so long and we're like, yeah, that, yeah glory, I know what that is. What is glory? And what is the glory of Jesus? What is, what is it that we are supposed to get from Jesus manifesting himself in his glory? I believe that we're supposed to see everything that is true and beautiful that makes him God. That makes his character and nature shine through. As Jothorn would say, it is the manifestation of his magnificence. It is his person. It is his work. This is what we're supposed to see throughout Scripture, and we see it here on the Mount of Transfiguration, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. As Jesus walked up this mountain, I'm sure that Peter, James, and John were not expecting that this was about to happen. Jesus probably sweating, carrying his own sack, looking normal, being fully God, or being fully man and fully God. Ultimately then, in prayer, revealing himself. But we also see in his glory, his work. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, but he is also the creator and sustainer and savior of life. So this is what we see throughout Scripture. This is the glory of Jesus that we see throughout the book of Luke, that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, is also the creator, sustainer, and savior, Messiah, who has come to save his people. This is who the Scriptures point us to when it talks about the glory of Jesus. And here's why this is significant. Throughout the Old Testament, God revealed his glory through a variety of ways to his people in Israel. Whether it's through the pillar of fire and smoke as Israel walked through the wilderness, or burning bushes as he spoke to Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh that he would set God's people free. God even revealed himself through earthquakes, wind, and water as Moses was on the mountainside on Mount Sinai. But Ezekiel 11 shows us that there is a great tragedy for the people of Israel when it comes to God's glory. You see, the king of Israel had left the temple. And then as you read through the book, you get to chapter 6 through 11 and see that Ezekiel is calling to Israel to repent. And if they don't, the coming of God's judgment was going to be upon them. And finally, in verse 23 of chapter 11, you see the glory of the Lord, which is the presence of God, leave the temple and go to the east over the mountains and settle there. Ultimately, what it is showing us and is showing the people of God is that he has removed his presence and has removed his glory from the nation. This is their great tragedy. And for 500 years, the Israelites did not see God's glory. Because of Israel's stubbornness and rebellious spirit, God stopped speaking to them. God stopped revealing who he was and his plan, and he stopped revealing his glory to them. Now, just to give you a perspective of what 500 years looks like, the United States became a nation in 1776. That was 247 years ago. We would need 253 more years as a nation to reach the amount of time in which God had not spoken or revealed his glory to his people. That's how long it had been since God had revealed his glory to them. And now on the Mount of Transfiguration, on this mountain, as Jesus is altered in his state, his glory is shining through, God is once again revealing his glory through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is a huge deal. For the disciples being there and seeing that God's glory has finally come back to Israel. And this is a big deal for us on this side of the cross because God has revealed his glory even to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his life and death and resurrection, we now have access to the glory of the Father and his presence is given to us. Our sins that once separated us from the love and the presence of the Father are forgiven. We receive Jesus' righteousness 
as He takes on our unrighteousness on the cross, and we are set free to enjoy unhindered access to the Father. And because of Jesus, and because of that access, we can have confidence, as the author of Hebrews says, to draw near to the throne of grace, where there is great mercy and great grace for our times of need. As Tim Keller once said, there was an infinite gap between God and man. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus bridges that gap for us. Jesus bridges the gap. Unlike any religion that teaches that you have to make a way to be right with God, that you have to earn and work your way to find favor with the Lord, that is not so through Jesus Christ. He has come down. He has made a way to restore and bring right relationship to the Father through His life and death and resurrection. And it is only through beholding Him that we will will receive this inheritance of glory when He calls us home or He comes back. But Luke doesn't just stop at Jesus' transformation. We find that this prayer retreat brings two more people into it. Specifically from the Old Testament. And as the story wasn't odd enough, right? Where did they come from? Ironically, these are the same men. If you've been walking through chapter 8 and chapter 9, this is who the crowd thought Jesus was. They thought that Jesus was Elijah. They thought that Jesus was one of the prophets of old or Moses returning. And as Luke writes, Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he, had, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to come back to what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about in regards to his departure later. Because it is significant and it is beautiful both, for both the disciples and us today. But what I want us to see is the significance of Moses and Elijah showing up on the mountain with Jesus. To the Jewish people, Moses and Elijah represented the whole of the Old Testament. Moses, the law, and the Ten Commandments that had been given to God's people as they entered into the Promised Land. And Elijah represented all of the prophets together. So these two men appearing on the mountain with Jesus, they weren't there just to hang out. They weren't there just to grab some coffee and talk to Jesus about his time on earth and what he experienced compared to their experience. What is being represented here by Moses and Elijah showing up is the pointing of the scriptures in fulfillment of Jesus coming to earth. The prophets and the law all pointed to Christ. This is what Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 4 on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ that he should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Moses and Elijah being there on the mountain represented the law and the prophets pointing to the one who would fulfill them. And they would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important for us to know our Old Testament, guys. I love what Alistair Begg says here. The New Testament is in the Old Testament, but it's concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament, and it is now revealed. And we're able to read both the Old and New in light of who it is pointing to. The Old Testament pointing to the coming Messiah. The New Testament pointing back to what He has done and reminding us of the reward that we will receive in glory. All of it points to Jesus. All of it is about Jesus. And when we behold him through his word, this is where transformation comes. I want you to see that this understanding of an altered face or an altered um, body, the Greek gives us this understanding of metamorphosis, which is an understanding that Our change is from within. So Jesus' change didn't come outwardly. It came from within. And so it is the same for believers who behold Jesus through His Word and meditate on the truth and the reality of who He is. You see, it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12 too when he tells us, do not be conformed to the image 
or do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the same word that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we as believers with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It is when we behold this glorious Savior that we then are transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. But before we move on to the disciples' response and the call to not only behold Jesus but to obey His commands, I want us to see something very beautiful from Moses and Elijah showing up on the mountaintop with Jesus. You see, Moses and Elijah had been gone for centuries. Yet them showing up in glory with Jesus here shows us that they were kept safe in the Father's hands. Their appearance proves to us that there is life after this life. And there is life for the believer who has put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Because that same faith that Moses and Elijah had is the same faith that saves us Today, it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we will one day be in glory with Him. And so for those of us who have lost parents and children and friends, we can look even at a small glimpse of this passage and know that those who have trusted in Jesus, while they may not be here with us right now, we will one day be with them in glory and they are in the care of the Father because of Jesus Christ. And we will see them again because death is not our end. Death is a doorway into the glorious reality that we will receive as children of God. And I hope that you find comfort in that this morning. But let's take a look at the disciples' response and not only for us beholding Jesus' glory, but obeying His commands. Look at verse 32 again. Luke writes, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with them, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Anyone ever read the New Testament and you're just encouraged by the disciples? Right? They are constantly asleep. When Jesus is praying, they, they seem to have high highs and low lows, and including Peter himself, which we'll see in a moment. But man, this, this should encourage us that God would use people who fail, people who constantly get it wrong, people who are asleep when Jesus is taking them on a special retreat to pray on a mountainside. And then, is there any disciple that you and I can relate to more than Peter? I mean, just eight days ago, think about this. Just eight days ago, he was praised because he got the question right, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ of God. And now we know from Mark 9 that Jesus then says, yes, that is true, and then the son must suffer and die. And what does Jesus say? No, that's not so. You will not die. I will protect you from that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so Peter, even in that experience, has a very high high, and in that moment, a very low low. You go from calling Jesus the Christ of God and then being called Satan, you're going to have some emotions running through you. But Peter was a man who loved the Lord, was enthusiastic about following Jesus. But he was also a man who had valley lows. And didn't always get it right. We see this even in the New Testament all the way into Galatians. But God still uses him. And God still uses these disciples. And we should find encouragement when we see these disciples not behaving how we think they should behave. Or even maybe sometimes how we think we would behave instead of how they would or did. But here's the problem that Peter reveals when he speaks. And we know it's a problem because God tells them to be quiet, right? Matthew even tells us that in the middle of what Peter is saying, 
God interrupts him. So if God is interrupting you while you're talking, you're probably not saying the right thing. But the problem that Peter had first was that he was speaking out of ignorance and fear. Now, I'm sure that all of us can relate to that, right? We, we say things and we're like, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. And, and in the heart or the, the, the root of where what we said, where that came from was ignorance and fear. The second problem that we see with what Peter had to say was that he was putting Moses and Elijah on the same pedestal as Jesus. He was trying to say, let us build three tents for all three of this men, when in reality is the tent should have only been built for Jesus. And I'll show you why in a moment. But the third was that he was trying to reverse God's plan of suffering and glory. As Leon Morris says, glory and suffering go hand in hand, both for our Savior and also us as disciples. You see, Peter, upon seeing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, proclaimed, let us make tents, right? Now, we have to understand what that means in regards to the disciples in that time. Because I know there are a lot of us in here who love to camp, myself included, and we would love to be in this mountaintop experience just camping out with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, right? So to see Peter's response, it's like, hey, why wouldn't you want to put tents out and camp with Jesus? But what he's ultimately revealing is that he wants to perpetuate the experience that is happening right now and not allow Jesus to go to Jerusalem. You see, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how did Peter actually know this was Moses and Elijah? Maybe they had some type of robe, right? A glorious robe with their name inscribed on it. That'd be really cool if we got the glory and we get a robe. But what I actually think is that Peter was listening to the conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And we saw that those three were talking about Jesus' departure, and that departure connects with what Jesus said to them earlier, that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die at the hands of the priests, scribes, and Sadducees. And then he must resurrect again. But what we know from the, the parallel passage in Mark and what I just shared earlier is that Peter actually tried to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem and going to the cross. And so here, I believe he's doing the same thing in saying, let us just sit here and worship. Let us just sit here and give glory to Jesus and glory to Moses and glory to Elijah. Let's not go to Jerusalem. Let's not go to the cross. But if we think back, there was also a time when this happened earlier in Luke. You see, in Luke 4, the third temptation that Satan gave to Jesus was that he would bow down to Satan and receive worship and glory from the rest of the world. And what we saw from that is that what Satan was trying to do was trying to tempt Jesus to take glory before the cross, to take glory before his suffering. But Jesus knows, and Jesus responds to Satan, and God then responds here to Peter that that is not the ultimate redemptive plan. The redemptive plan flows through and goes through Jesus' cross for our sins. And then he receives glory. It is not the other way around. Only true glory can come after the cross. And that is what God is ultimately entering into this conversation that Peter is speaking on. Showing that Jesus must die. He must go to Jerusalem in order for sins to be forgiven, in order for you and I to have right relationship with God. It only comes through the cross. But like I said earlier, we often can find ourselves in the same boat as Peter, in the same boat as the disciples. How easy is is it for us as believers to try and avoid the cross, but still gain glory? How easy is it for us to not, as Jesus said last week, deny our not bear our cross, but still seek glory, to still seek the things that the Lord promises us as believers without truly understanding that it is only through death to self 
that we will receive this crown and this reward. You see, the problem with Peter's response is that he wasn't really listening. He wasn't listening eight days ago, and he wasn't listening here and now as Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah that glory only comes after the cross, which is why God immediately comes down in a cloud of glory and responds and terrifies the disciples. So let's look at God's final word. As he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now to us, this rebuke may be very familiar, especially for parents in here, right? You get to a place where you're finally like, I'm done with you talking. I need you to be quiet and listen to me. Don't say another word. Just listen to me. Now, that may seem like what's happening, and maybe it is just a little bit, but there is more to what is happening here. For Peter, James, and John, as well as us, God is giving a final word of who Jesus is and why we should obey him. Really, he gives three final words. Not only, as, as you see throughout Luke's chapter 8 and chapter 9, not only does it connect finally answering the question that we saw early in chapter 8, who is this man that even controls storms? But also, why Jesus came. And we can only truly know Jesus. The only way to truly know him is to know why he came. And then we must respond rightly to who he is. So let's look at these three final words that God gives answering the question, who is this man? And telling Peter, pay attention. The first one we see is, God says, this is my son. Now you'll find that all three of these statements find a connection in the Old Testament. Right? So when God says, this is my son, he's not only referring to just the sonship and the son of God that we find in the Trinity and the triune God, but what he's actually referring to more is earthly kingship. You see in Psalm 2, we see David speaking of a king of Israel that is his son. But ultimately, we know that this psalm is pointing to Christ, to the eternal son who would one day come and receive the royal title that would testify that he is the king of all. And then God says, he is my chosen one. Here, God is pointing to Isaiah and connecting this suffering servant, this chosen one who was to come and die and suffer for his people. We see this starting in Isaiah 41 all the way to the end of Isaiah 53, this suffering servant, this chosen one who was to come to set his people free. And finally, God gives a command to his people and to those disciples that are there that day, listen to him. And this is echoing Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19 that say, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall not speak in my name, I myself will, will require it of him. So in connecting and echoing what God is saying here in Deuteronomy 18, he is saying that Jesus is this great prophet. And you are to listen to him. All that the Father says is confirming to the disciples and to us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the glorious Son of God who has come as King to rule and reign over his creation and to save his people through his life, death, and resurrection from the grave. And God's command to Peter and the disciples that day is the same to us who follow Jesus. Listen to him. Because it is in him that you will find true joy and life and ultimate glory. But it is only after we bear our own cross. 
It is only after we seek to follow him and deny ourselves that we will receive this crown. So this morning, I want to ask you guys this question. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to beholding his glory and obeying his commandments? It has to come through worship. And I don't mean worship like coming in on Sunday morning and just singing gospel-centered songs. I mean worship that Romans 12 talks about is your sacrificial living. Is your life being put on the cross, your daily cross of denying yourself and following after Him, that is your act of spiritual worship in reflecting the true reality of who you are as a son and daughter of God. And so we must behold His glory and obey His commandments in worship. And we do this I mean, you, you probably should know this answer already if you've been here long enough and heard me preach long enough. We do this in two ways. Through, through His Word and prayer and through His people. That is the way in which we behold His glory. Now, some of us might say, man, I wish that I could be on this mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, right? Then and then only would I really have a recognition of Jesus' glory in front of me. And it, it would be a lot easier for me to, to follow Jesus because I've seen him in glory. But let me take you to what Peter says about his experience on that mountain that day. We already read that it impacted him all the way to the end of his life. But he follows that up with this. We have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a, light, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." What Peter is saying here is that, yes, I experienced the mountaintop and saw Jesus in his glory, but there is something more fully confirmed, and that is the word of God given to you, given to us. Can you wrap your head around that? That this word that we have is more fully confirmed than Jesus standing in front of him? But it's because this word points to Jesus. This word points us to the reality of who he is. That He is the creator and sustainer and savior of all. And we can worship Him. And we can behold Him as we submit and obey to what He says in His word. But it's also important as believers to behold God's glory through His people. And to recognize that every time we step in here on Sunday morning in this gathering, this is not like any other gathering. It's not like going to a concert and hearing your favorite songs. This is where God's word goes forth. This is where your life is changed. This is where people go from, life to, from death to life. It is important that we as believers gather together weekly. That as Hebrews 11 says, not forsake the time of coming together and gathering as believers so that we can hear God's word, so that we can sing with one another, so that we can partake in communion together. Because in this moment, we are experiencing a foretaste of what is to come in glory. As Revelation 19 and 21 tell us, that we will one day worship the Lord with all tribes and tongues and languages together it's experiencing the glory of God. But in this moment, in the here and now, why it is so important to come and behold His glory with one another is because we are experiencing a foretaste of what glory is supposed to look like. And so I would encourage you, as I said last week, there are times where we can deny ourselves. And one of the ways we deny ourselves is by coming to church. When it's nice weather outside, we don't say, nah, I'll just come next week. Now, I'm not saying some of you do that, but I come from a culture in South Florida where that was very prominent. But there are other things that we can deny in ourselves in order to be here with 
the saints gathered together. So we behold his glory through his word, and we behold his glory with his people, and we, we behold his glory in prayer. As we saw Jesus starting this retreat off on the mountaintop in prayer. But finally, we are called to obey him. We are to truly listen to him. Not like Peter, who's kind of listening, but we are to listen faithfully, learning who Jesus is, learning his character, learning why he came, learning what he has called us to do and how we are to live. And we are called to listen by submitting to his will. It's not enough to just hear his words, but we see throughout Scripture we are to obey his commands. As James would tell us, this is faith and works together. And it's here. And it's here when we behold his glory and when we obey his commands that we can have a true hope and know that we will one day be in glory with him. You see, this fascinating moment of Jesus' life is but a foreshadow of what is to come for those who are faithful to him. And it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. At the end of the book, he tells Lucy and Edmund and all the children that the term is over. The holidays are now here and they have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. This great story which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before, is now here. And this is what we have to look forward to. This is the reward. Eternity with the triune God in glory, going on forever and ever and ever, where each day becomes better than the last. Or as the old hymn says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. This is, what the reward, this is the reward that we receive. And so as we close in communion, I want us to be directed back to that conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Luke writes, Behold, two men were talking with him who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to come in Jerusalem. You see, that word departure here is the same word for Exodus. And soon after this mountaintop moment of glory, Jesus, a figure who Moses ultimately pointed to in his Exodus, would set his face towards Jerusalem to fulfill his own Exodus, knowing that his death and resurrection would fully and finally set the captives free. You see, Moses' Exodus was a temporary freedom. It was a freedom from Egypt, but it was not a freedom from sin and the bondage to it. But Christ's exodus does this. It's Christ's exodus through his life and death and resurrection that frees us from the bondage of sin and the slavery to it and from living a life where we feel we need to earn our way with God to earn favor with him. It frees us from identifying ourselves in this world. It frees us from living a life that masquerades and pretends that we are truly following Jesus. And it is in this truth that we have hope, that we no longer have to do enough to appease God. We don't have to muster up good faith or make ourselves clean before coming to him. There's nothing that we can do to make us make him love us more or love us less. Christ's finished work on the cross gives us that validation. And it is in his exodus that we can rejoice that we are now truly set free. And then we also receive the stamp of approval, the delighting of the Father. When he says to Jesus, this is my son, this is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. Because we are in Jesus, we receive the same identification that God is now pleased and delights in us as sons and daughters of God. And so when we come to the table of communion, this is what we are remembering. This is what we are reflecting on, 
that Jesus in his exodus, through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, has set us free. And it is a foretaste of what is to come in glory when we are around the throne at the banquet and feast of the great Lamb. And we will be free from sin and the shame and anything that mars us because of it. And so when you come today and when you come each week to this table, grabbing this bread, grabbing this juice, be reminded of that truth. That because of Jesus' exodus, you are now set free. And because of the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, you now identify with him and his righteousness has been poured out onto you. So I'm going to invite you to come and grab the elements. And I'm going to give you some time, uh, a time of instruction before we take communion together. So would you come down and grab the elements? Before we take communion, I want to instruct us. Instruct us in two ways as believers. When we come to the table, we are called to examine ourselves. Both examining our hearts and where we may have sin that we need to repent of, but also examine our relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. And if there is any separation, if there's any thing that might come between you and a brother and sister in Christ, the the scriptures tell us to put your offering down and go to them and reconcile because you have been reconciled to the Father. But it also calls us to examine our hearts and to, to repent of our sins. But also we are to examine our hearts if we are not a believer. If we have not trusted in Jesus as Lord, we would be called through this communion to examine ourselves by not partaking it, but reflecting on the reality of the gospel and what it would mean to put your faith in Christ. And so if you have not trusted in him, I I ask you and plead with you to refrain from taking this bread and take this juice until you have placed your faith in him as Lord. But for those who have trusted in him, may we examine our hearts, may we examine our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then may we celebrate the reality that we have been freed from sin and freed from shame and freed from trying to earn our salvation and that God now delights in us and that Jesus' righteousness has been given to us and our unrighteousness has been given to him. So I'm going to give you some time to examine yourself and then we will celebrate communion together.